Hello and welcome to a podcast from Sadie Records. Each time Sadie releases a new album, we do a podcast to highlight the artist and the music, and that's what we're doing today. And this wonderful new album is entitled Final Thoughts, The Last Piano Works of Schubert and Brahms. And this album features the very wonderful Jorge Federico Osorio. Jorge, this is a wonderful two-CD set, and we're very happy to have you here to talk about it with us. I'm delighted to be here. Jorge, I thought we might begin for those listeners to this podcast who might not be familiar with your career to talk just a bit about your career and your life, and I'll just introduce it by saying a few words from this AD record. You have played all over the world. You have performed with outstanding conductors such as Lauren Mazel, James Conlon, Bernard Heitink, Klaus Tenstedt, Robert Spano, and so many others all over the world. You have also got a wonderful honor from Mexico's National Institute of the Arts, the highly prestigious Medalla Bella Artes, and that's mm -hmm. the highest award you could get in your country. So just a quick few words about your background. You are from Mexico, and how did you begin studying piano? Well, yes, I'm from Mexico City. As far as I remember, there was music always at home. My mother, a pianist, Luz Maria Puente, she's still actually playing. In a couple of months, we're playing a concert together, Mozart Double Concerto. She was my teacher until I left for Paris at uh, 16. And my father, a violinist, and then later he gave up the violin for politics. But his first love and passion really was music. So I started playing the piano and the violin at the same time. I played both instruments until I was uh, 12. And I don't know why I gave up the violin. It's, it was so silly of me. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't really the piano. It was really the music. Of course, I love the piano, and we're blessed with the music that's been written, the literature for the piano. It's immense. It really is the love of music. That's why I became a musician, and being a pianist is, I think, where I can express myself better. So there was always music at home, and I remember the first big impression that I got from listening to something was Beethoven's Seventh Symphony. I remember it was like a present that my mother gave my father, a recording of the Seventh Symphony with the Vienna Philharmonic and Karajan. I remember that my father immediately went and put the LP. I woke up and I said, what is this so wonderful, so inspiring? So as I say, music was there all the time. Listening to music, especially was with my father and not mostly the piano music, like many people think. It was mostly the violin repertoire. I was listening most of the day to Haifetz, uh, Shigeti, Francescati, of course, Arthur Rubinstein and uh, Schnabel, Kempf. As I say, of course, it's the piano, but it's for me, it's first the music. Do you remember how old you were when you heard the Beethoven Seventh? Was it before you started playing? I must have been seven or eight years old. Of course, I kept practicing playing both instruments, and when I was 11 or 12, Van Cliburn came to play to Mexico, and he made such an impression on me. He played, I remember, Brahms' Concerto Number no. 2, which I heard live. I was so moved by his sound and his presence, the sound with the orchestra. Of course, I had heard the concerto many times at home on recording, the Horowitz Toscanini we had at that time. And then I heard him play... Schumann Piano Concerto, this was broadcasted on TV. And that even made a stronger impression. And that's when I remember vividly, because I was sitting there with my grandmother, and I told her, this is what I want to do. So yes, I was very inspired by Van Cliburn. Now, it's not every seven-year-old, though, that hears Beethoven Seventh and gets bowled over by it. Mm -hmm. So you clearly <laughs> accepted this music right from the start. Mm -hmm. As I say, there was music always at home. I remember at that time, my parents, they were very close friends with Hendrik Schering. He would come often to the house and, of course, start playing and playing and playing. He wouldn't stop until everybody was completely asleep and he would keep going. I just grew with that sound and with that love for music. Now, when you were 16, you took off for Paris. Why mm. Paris? Paris, because by then I had met my teacher, Bernard Flavigny, French pianist who came to Mexico for about 10 or 12 years every summer to give master classes. And they would go on at least for 8 or 10 weeks. I met him when I was maybe 11, 12. So I was studying with him and with my mother. 
he was so inspiring, such an inspiring teacher that I decided I want to go to Paris to study with him. Interesting town for a 16-year-old kid. Oh, yes. <laughs> Very, yes. Was he at a conservatory? Or? No, I studied with him privately. But I did enter the conservatoire in Paris, and I did study a couple of years with Monique As. Do you remember your Paris days as a teenager outside of the music? It's quite a town. Quite a town. I used to be practicing was hard. <laughs> no, no, it was so inspiring. I mean, everything about the culture, the museums, the concerts. And where did you go from Paris? From Paris, I spent two years in Moscow. I had been always interested in, and I was very drawn to the Russian school of playing. All this has to do with sound. Let me go back a little bit. The thing that struck me so much about my teacher Flavimi is the, the love of sound, the quality of sound, and this tool that we sometimes pianists neglect. And that's what's exactly what drew me to the Russian school, having heard not Harovitz at that time, but certainly Gilles and many others on record. That's interesting because, as listeners will hear in a moment when we get to the first selections from this album, you don't strike me as having a Russian sort of bravura sound. Your sound, I think, is incredible, mm -hmm. <laughs> which we'll talk about mm -hmm. in a minute, but I wouldn't characterize it necessarily as that Russian uh, sound. No, but it's, I guess it's what one is searching at that time, or what, what I was searching, that it's, it's the quality of the, the noblesse of, of sound that I think they have. Certainly, my teacher later on in New York uh, had that, Nadia Reisenberg. Interesting that you mentioned that. I would say yours is much more of a Gilel sound than, say, a Richter sound. Yes, I didn't mention Richter. Of course, I admire him or that, but it's, uh, yes, the Gilel sound is really extraordinary. The voice you just heard was Jim Ginsburg, the president of CD Records, and if I'm not mistaken, the producer of this album. Yes, I had the great joy of producing this album and all this wonderful music and getting to work so closely with these pillars of the repertoire and Jorge's amazingly sensitive interpretations of them. Well, Jorge, let's continue the story a little bit before we get into the album. So mm -hmm. from Mexico City to Paris to Moscow. Mm -hmm. To New York. <laughs> <laughs> and New York was to study with a particular person? Uh, yes, well, my studies in Moscow had to be stopped because of uh, political reasons. They wouldn't renew my scholarship then because there had been some incidents, and you know how touchy there was. There. What year were we talking about yes, there? Yes, 1972. Tumultuous time. Yes, Brezhnev was there. I really had a wonderful time in Russia with all the difficulties and everything. I was exposed to many things that otherwise you're not. No? So off to New York and studying again privately. Uh, privately with uh, Nadia Reisenberg, Russian pianist. She actually studied with the same teacher as uh, Sofronitsky in St. Petersburg. And at this point, were you starting to get engagements? Uh, uh, yes, yes, already I was playing. So it is, as you know, it's a combination. You study all your life. And uh, luckily I was being invited, especially in Mexico and, and in Europe. You make your home now in Chicago. So was there any place of residence between New York and Chicago? After New York, we moved, uh, I said we moved because I was there already with my wife, Silvana. We moved to Mexico City for a few years, and then I was quite busy in England, so we decided to go and try it out and live in London for a couple of years. We stayed 11 years, and then after that we wanted to come to live in the United States. And I had been already twice in Chicago, I always enjoyed the city so much. We thought a few things to think about where are we going to live. We wanted a good local orchestra. <laughs> Can you imagine? <laughs> good museums and a convenient airport for the traveling. Well, so we, we found everything here. here, certainly. Just out of curiosity, did you meet your wife in Mexico City, Paris, yes. London, no, Moscow, no, in Mexico, New York? Or? In Mexico City. Well, so here you are in Chicago, and we feel very lucky to have you as a resident of the city because you perform... Frequently, and with that orchestra that you mentioned, that's pretty yes. good orchestra. Yeah, it was a dream of mine when I was a kid to play with Chicago Symphony. I'm so thrilled that so many things have really happened. Well, let's turn our attention to this new release on CD. It's called Final Thoughts, The Last Piano Works of Schubert and Brahms, and this is a two-CD set. So what was the inspiration for the album? It's something that I had been thinking about for many, many years. 
Uh, let me go back a little bit. In 1978, I took a course with Wilhelm Kempf in Positano in Italy. So the course was mainly focused on Beethoven. We were five or six students. We went through all the Beethoven piano sonatas and the five concerti with Kempf. And then as a present for us, Kempf played a Schubert recital. He played uh, some impromptus, then the F minor sonata, which is very seldom played, and then the G major, the sonata fantasy. And when he finished, of course, we were just so moved, we couldn't move. <laughs> Can you imagine? He's playing right there, like a meter from you. And then he sat and played two or three encores, and it was some Brahms intermezzi. It was so beautiful, and it just made so much sense, and I had forgotten about that for years. And then sometimes I would program Brahms and Schubert together. For instance, put together a program of the Brahms sonata, the number three, opus five, and then on the second half, the Schubert B-flat, two very big works. But then I also started playing Brahms' smaller works and one of the big Schubert sonatas on the second half, like I did in Ravinia last year. The link between these two composers... Definitely, I think, Brahms' admiration for Schubert. This is a very personal what I talk about these two composers. But I found a quote, again from Kempf, that he says, Schubert reveals his innermost secrets to us in piano and pianissimo. And I think that that's so pertinent to these four last opuses of Brahms because he gets very personal. It's not that he wasn't personal in his other works, but if you think about it, what prompted him to do something like this and open his heart and be more vulnerable? I wish I could ask him. Only before in his piano works, maybe something that would relate in this way would be the ballads Opus 10. But that's about it. These intimate moments, it's what keeps this repertoire together in these two cities. Intimate moments. Intimate, With yes. The Brahms pieces, one does get the feeling that he thought of them as possibly final works. Yes, and it's not that he wrote two or three pieces, I mean 20, one after the other, and it's just incredible. No? Now Schubert, on the other hand, mm -hmm. yes. so young. Yes, so young, and it's heartbreaking to think, you know, but until the end he was so busy composing and composing in a way inexplicable. We're going to listen to the opening movement of the Sonata in B-flat major, uh, Deutsch 960, to start this podcast. Uh, we won't hear the whole thing. We'll just hear an excerpt. Anything about this piece you'd like to alert our listeners to? Aren't we lucky that we cannot express uh, <laughs> music in words? It's just overwhelming, this eternity and this expression and this intimacy and this sheer beauty. I'm so moved every time. And actually, every time I perform this, even when I was recording, just before playing, you are already in such a state well, of course, it's the music. When you mention eternity, of course, everybody thinks of Robert Schumann's line about Schubert's heavenly lengths. And unlike many pianists, you take the repeat of the exposition in this first moment, which makes it almost 20 minutes long, which for that period is really unusual. Yes, it is unusual. But that's the way he asked for it. And for me, it's the score that dictates what has to be done. <laughs> but can you talk a little bit about how you sustain the line and the melody and the architecture of a movement that long? Mm -hmm. First of all, it's maybe not trying to think or not trying to disguise the length of the piece. You should let it unfold naturally. And if you're really convinced of what you're doing, yes, it's long. As a performer, if you start trying to make it maybe not so long, that would be a disaster. And you get bored and the audience get bored. So it just follows and unfolds naturally. And if it's also molto moderato, he really wanted slow. He really wanted things to have their time, like time suspended. Every time you come to the very dramatic measures before the first big repeat, it's so dramatic, so emphatic, so moving. And then the big silence before it starts again, I think, is one of the most wonderful moments in music. I was just going to suggest we could listen to the exposition, including that passage that leads to the repeat that many listeners may not be familiar with because it is often omitted. 
Well, let's listen to the opening of the Sonata in B-flat major, Deutsch 960 by Schubert. It's marked molto moderato, and it's performed on this brand-new CD recording by Jorge Federico Osorio. Thank you. 
That was an excerpt from the first movement of the Sonata in B-flat Major Deutsch 960 of Schubert, performed on a new CD recording by Jorge Federico Osorio. Jorge, we've decided to match this excerpt with the last movement of the Sonata in A major, Deutsch mm-hmm. 959. Interesting juxtaposition. Uh, Jim Ginsburg, President, why did you uh, set it up this way? Well, I wanted to give an overview. We'll hear selections from each of the Brahms opuses after this, but to do an overview of the Schubert, I thought that amazing, expansive opening movement of the B-flat paired with the first piece on the album. I should note that on the album, the big Schubert Sonata's bookend, the shorter Brahms pieces, I just thought that the finale of the A major had a very valedictory feel and would be a good way to end our look at the Schubert half of this recording. It's amazing to think as a structure the A major after the Andantino and then the Scherzo and then this quite long finale, so full of beauties just a couple of months before Schubert died. And yet this A major is so sunny, so optimistic, so beautiful. The coda also is just burst with life. I think it's fabulous. Let's listen to an excerpt from the Rondo Allegretto, the last movement of the Schubert Sonata in A major, Deutsch 959, performed by our guest in the studio and the featured artist on this album on Sadie Records, Jorge Federico Osorio.
That was an excerpt from the last movement of the Sonata in A Major, Deutsch 959, of Franz Schubert. We heard part of the last movement, Rondo Allegretto, performed by our guest and the featured artist on this new CD recording, Jorge Federico Osorio. Jorge, we're going to turn our attention now to the other composer on this album, and the album is entitled Final Thoughts, The Last Piano Works of Schubert and Brahms. So these Brahms pieces are definitely some of his last works, and one suspects that he might have been aware that either he didn't have much composing left in him as he thought, mm-hmm. or that maybe these would be his last works. So there's almost a nostalgic feeling in some of these pieces, isn't there? Yes, very nostalgic, so much melancholy. As usually, I go and try to get insights from these composers, and I especially go and read his letters. And I found Brahms's words. He wrote to a friend, I am a severely melancholic person. Just to start and put that in such strong words, no? There's another quote of Brahms from a letter, if I may read. He says, It always seems to be rather melancholy when you write of the feeling of being lonely. I have a thorough understanding of that and hope that you are going to be careful, for I am that too. For a long time or for all time, I have been somewhat lonely individual and still am. I've always thought of him as someone who was lonely. He yes. Li- he lived alone. Yes, yes. He, mm-hmm. he had many friends. He could be a little caustic in parties, but really I always thought of him as lonely. Yes, very lonely, I guess. And I have my own ideas now when we talk about, with the repertoire, about what it means. Uh, we can go in order, the meaning of his music and these piano pieces. The first of the Brahms pieces we'll hear will be the Brahms Opus 116, number one, We'll hear it complete. It's not a very long piece. Tell us about this piece. It's such a compelling start of this set, this Fantasian, and immediately so much energy, so much vigor in three. Yum, bum, bam, bum, bam. There's no melody. There's just all these feelings, inner uneasiness. <laughs> I don't know how to put it. Very short piece, very concise, very dramatic, and it's just an incredible opening, and somehow. It just opens the cycle, and it's inevitable that the A minor intermezzo has to follow. I think the opening of this 116 and the opening of 118 have those same characteristics, really. Opus 116, number one, Capriccio in D minor, Jorge Federico Osorio.
That was the Capriccio in D minor, the first in the set of seven fantasies, Opus 116 by Johannes Brahms, performed by Jorge Federico Osorio. Jorge, the seven fantasies are part of a set, Opus 116. Yes. So talk a bit about the pieces as a set. Well, as a set, I find that it's one of the most complete by Brahms, like one piece in itself. The tonal relations, the keys, and the characters of the caprichos and the intermezzos in between. It just makes so much sense to include it, as I said, and that's what I usually do in my programs. Seldom do I play them separately. And it's interesting to note that, for instance, the the number four on, of this set, it was the only piece that uh, Brahms hesitated to name it intermezzo. He wrote uh, Nocturno, Nocturne. And then being Brahms, I'm sure he said he was fed up with him, like, what am I doing now? This is intermezzo. <laughs> <laughs> yes, the character of that piece, the Opus 116, number four, is, it really is like Nocturne, really. Now, you mentioned mm-hmm. uh, that you like to perform these pieces as a set. You don't often play them as excerpts. You've known these pieces a long time. Yes. I'm wondering how your interpretation of them has changed, if you can... Mm-hmm. speak to that o- over the many years that you've mm-hmm. played them. So I might ask more specifically, what would be different about what we hear on this album that we might have heard 40 years mm-hmm. ago when you were playing them? Mm-hmm. I'm sure as you progress and as you deepen your thoughts about the pieces you're playing, obviously that reflects on your performances, on your interpretations. But in essence, I don't think they have changed much. I think my gut feeling, the first I think I thought of them when I was young, when I started learning these pieces. I don't think that has changed a lot. Maybe in the way it has changed is how I conveyed those feelings performing them. In essence, it's like with the Schubert uh, B-flat. I learned it when I was uh, studying in Moscow. I learned it very quickly. In essence, I don't think I've changed that much, but uh, maybe I have, I don't know. Well, you just used the phrase, what might have changed is how you convey the feelings. Mm-hmm. What does that actually Maybe mean? Maybe to make it more direct to the listener. Yes, sometimes when you're young, or, or at least in my case, I remember that many things I used to keep for myself. And I think that I've learned to maybe open up a little more so that we can really share. <laughs> Hard to put in words, isn't it? Yes. All right, we're going to hear the... First of these three intermezzos mm-hmm. was 117. And you earlier talked about the melancholic feeling mm-hmm. of these pieces in general. I think that probably applies more universally to these three, to this yes, set. absolutely. The other yes. sets, I think there is a variety of moods, but mm-hmm. this set is no. pretty much melancholy all the way through. Exactly. It's like, for instance, for this Opus 17 number one, like Brahms himself wrote, it's like a lullaby of my sorrows. <laughs> and I think that says it all. And we were talking about why we linked these two composers. I think in the middle part also, it's the way Brahms does these key changes and key searching. It's like a very dark, painful, and also searching for lights that could be similar to what Schubert did in his last sonatas too, especially in the slow movements. Why don't we hear that gorgeous middle section?
That was an excerpt from the Brahms Opus 117, number one, marked on Dante Moderato and performed on a brand new two CD set from CD Records. The album is named Final Thoughts, The Last Piano Works of Schubert and Brahms. And earlier in this podcast, we heard two excerpts from music by Schubert, and we're going to wrap up our podcast with music of Brahms. We've just heard two excerpts by Brahms from Opus 116 and 117. And Jorge will hear now an excerpt from Opus 118, which is also a set, a set of six pieces. How would you characterize this set? This very first intermezzo is like a prelude, an opening to the whole set, finishing in A major, the first intermezzo, and then follows naturally this intermezzo that we're going to listen to A major, which is all beauty, all autumn melancholy, such a touching and personal piece. It's hard to describe. You can just almost see a picture of Brahms playing himself. I had a teacher who would paint that picture of this old man with a big beard, cigar juice streaming from his lips onto his beard. Yes. Smoking and playing this piece. Mm -hmm. That's an Mm -hmm. image I have. Exactly. And also there's a close friend of Brahms that said Brahms often he used to sit down at the piano and start improvising and making noises, scratches and he thought he was on his own and as uh, soon as he noticed that someone was listening he would stop completely and start playing a Bach fugue or something like that that shows you how intimate how personal how he didn't uh, often like to open up that way that's also why we have all this wonderful repertoire in the things that uh, he didn't feel convinced they were good enough he burned well, he didn't burn this one, so let's listen no. <laughs> to an excerpt from the Brahms Opus 118, number two, performed by our guest and the featured artist on this new CD recording, Jorge Federico Osorio. That was an excerpt from the Opus 118, number two of Brahms, performed for us by Jorge Federico Osorio. And this is a new two-CD set from C.D. marked Final Thoughts, The Last Piano Works of Schubert and Brahms. And it's a very rich album and so much to 
experience here and the concept of final thoughts is quite beautiful. And was that your concept, Jim? Well, the music was Jorge's <laughs> yes. concept. How to frame it was uh, something I contributed. And I mm-hmm. should note, yes. even though it's a two CD set, it is sold at the price of a single album. <laughs> I see. <laughs> <laughs> well, very important to know. And how does one obtain? Because it can be done 10 different ways, but on sadierecords.org. That's always a good way. Of course, all the major retailers, Amazon.com, iTunes, if you prefer to stream, Spotify, it's available in all formats and platforms. And that is C-E-D-I-L-L-E records.org. One piece left, uh, Jorge, the Brahms Opus 119, number four. Before we get to that and we'll close with it, we'll hear it in its entirety. I wanted to ask you, you mentioned you're performing with your mom. Yes. This summer? Yes, in June 25th. Where? In Mexico City. And it's the Mozart II piano. The Mozart II piano. Have you performed with her before? Yes, we did this concerto some years ago already. We haven't played it in about 18 years. My mother is 93. I wasn't going to ask, but... but (laughs) She looks amazing She looks amazing, yes. Wow, I had no idea. I hope someone should videotape that and I think they're going to do it, yes. And And actually, the conductor is Gustavo Rivero, a former student of my mother. He studied at Curtis also with with Jorge Bolet, and he's now a conductor. He has this youth orchestra, Eduardo Mata Youth Orchestra, and it was really his idea to as an homage to my mother which I thought it was so touching. Is it with the youth orchestra that you're doing? Yes, yes. What's the date? (laughs) June 25th, 6 p.m., Sala Netzahualcoyot, which is the best hall in Mexico City, one of the best halls. What other appearances can we look forward to in coming months? I'll be playing at mainly Mozart, San Diego, Beethoven Concerto Number 1. I have other orchestral engagements in in Mexico, playing Beethoven concertos. I'll be going to Ireland. That's the Falla and Ravel, left-hand concerto. With the Atlanta Symphony, I have the series of the five piano concertos, Beethoven's, beginning of next year. With Spano? With Spano, yes. Any appearances at Ravinia this summer? Uh, Not this summer. What's wrong with them? What happened? I think that's about an every other year thing, yes. right? Yes. Yep. Often alternated with performances downtown, either with the orchestra or on the piano series. For those of you who've never had the opportunity to see and hear Jorge in person, how to describe it, you appear at the piano in a very refined way. You don't throw yourself around the piano too much. But what comes mm-hmm. out is just the opposite, very passionate and committed and virtuosic mm-hmm. and beautiful and thoughtful but a kind of sober approach. Yes. Is that just Uh, you? That's the way that just happens, yes. I don't mind it, actually, when a pianist does it, unless it's clear that they're showboarding. Yeah, no, no, I don't mind it It, at all. all. As long as you feel it's really (laughs) honest, it's not theatrical for the wrong reasons. In the case of Long Long, for example, if it's distracting, then you close your eyes. It's only your ears that count anyway. Yes, exactly, (laughs) yes. But in your case, uh, I think Mozart actually spoke about this, didn't he, in a letter mm-hmm. about how to deport oneself at the keyboard. Yes. I'm sure you know yes, that letter. Yes. And he would more lean towards your style. Yes, yeah. Because, I mean, he said, well, everything seems easy. He said, well, I worked, practiced plenty so that it would look that way. So. Ori, earlier you mentioned your dream of performing with the uh, Chicago Symphony Orchestra, which you've of course, done many times now. Yes. Uh, what else about the Chicago music scene uh, really attracted you to come here and, and uh, take up residence in Highland Park and base your career here? For how long have you been? In- I've been here for 17 years at least, yes. <laughs> My goodness, yes, time flies. Well, as I mentioned, when I started coming to Chicago, I, I love the city, love the people. Of course, we thought let's have a fantastic orchestra, the museums. Also, it's been some years that I started teaching at Roosevelt University. I lived in New York and I lived in London, but somehow this is more personal, intimate, for instance, even with the public. You get to meet the people from the public. It's not something detached. And I think that's one of the things we we enjoy most here. We're going to conclude our podcast with a complete performance of the Opus 119, number four of Brahms. Any final thoughts on this final selection on our podcast? Yes, in particular to this rhapsody, 
because after this, he really closed the book and he didn't write anything else for the piano. And this piece has been very puzzling, always. Here we have the Rhapsody. To close this set, he starts as if he had regained his uh, youth, a very strong young man again, so confident, almost triumphant in E-flat. Everything just flows so easily and you can feel also he's so confident as, as a composer. And then also after that, there's a very gentle passage, a very touching, almost uh, childlike. I also find moments that reference the academic festival overture, like and then no trouble at all like someone so confident and then when he comes back in the closing page everything changes to the most dramatic you can imagine like uh, even his notation everything becomes like sudden explosions or I don't know what what is it that uh, dissonant uh, the character changes so much and then he goes to E flat minor and then it abruptly finishes as if he was frustrated or something unfulfilled. I think it's so dramatic and how a little bit bitter of something he couldn't achieve. I don't know. As I say, these are all personal reflections. Why did he decide to do that? And then nothing came after that. Maybe some of our podcast listeners will have the answer, but this is the Rhapsody from the Four Piano Pieces, Opus 119. This is number four, the Rhapsody in E-flat major performed on a brand new two-CD set on Sadie Records by our guest, Jorge Federico Osorio. 